I'm Natasha, and I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This season, we'll invite guests of varying expertise to playfully investigate Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Each episode will explore a particular type of intelligence according to Gardner. This week's challenge was to teach people on the street about the theory of multiple intelligences. Brett and I had our street students take a survey that evaluated not only our efficacy as educators, but also our interpersonal intelligence. We've invited TikTok teaching sensation and historian Emily Poole to play with us and explain how good educators must be able to meet their students where they're at, apparently on TikTok. For the full video challenge and bonus footage, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter and subscribe. Enjoy! What would Howard Gardner say? He'd say you're an asshole, probably. <laughs> this is a regular oh. shit show today. This is fun. Oh, look at you. You're exactly on time. Hello. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. There she is, Miss America. Yes. Are you dressed for a prom? I did put on a jumpsuit just for this occasion. So cute. Nice. nice. I'm wearing a onesie, just saying. Perfect. <laughs> We're essentially matching. <laughs> I just got done coaching volleyball, so I'm like sweaty and like I wore my Colorado hat for you. Yay! I was gonna say, way to represent. Nice. Yeah. I'm gonna grab my tea because. Okay, go get your tea. <laughs> you have a homecoming tonight, huh? Yeah, and I found out we have specific duties based on whatever whoever teacher you are. And my duty, because our homecoming is on our campus, kind of like inside half of a building, but also outside. Like we have these big garage doors that we're gonna open up. So my duty is to wear a headlamp and then to run around the outside of the building to make sure that students are not doing anything nefarious. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll be doing that all night long. You're probably the perfect person to do that though. Because you're the cool teacher. Yeah. And they like want to be like on the good side because like she's so cool. She's on TikTok. She'll make fun of us on TikTok. I probably would. I've seen some of these TikTok teachers and the things they do in their classroom kind of like with their students. What you think about that? Give me an example of what you think is like inappropriate teacher TikToking. I think that anything involving your students with your students directly there is inappropriate. Now, I've done that like one time and I asked my students permission and it was for like half a second and they were like, yes, you can. Right. The goal of me as an educator is to actually educate my kids and like not turn it into the spectacle. And my concern about some of those teachers and the things that I see is that they're using kind of their platform as a teacher to highlight how cool they are or whatever on the social media platform and i am not here for it and so isn't there supposed to be a difference maybe perhaps in i don't know the identity and the maturity level of the teacher and the student it seems to me like there's a lot of regression to the uh pubertal mean of uh emotional intelligence in a lot of teachers mm. on social media <laughs> you know how relevant based on what we're going to talk about today Perhaps they have a wilder students, students that are a little bit more unruly. If you don't have that rapport, then you're not going to be effective. So maybe there is a place for it. Mm -hmm. I am not going to say that it is right one way or the other. Again, I always try to hold things like loosely because I'm not an expert on anything. But I personally, in my current stage of teaching, like experience level and where I'm currently teaching, would not do that. I'm just going to say it. 
From what I've seen, a lot of Black teachers, Black high school teachers, they have a lot of involvement with their students. Their students are on a lot of TikTok. And in general, I'm just going to make an observation. Black culture is built around kind of camaraderie and joking. And so in order to build a rapport and perhaps respect, the teacher mm. needs to read you on mm -hmm. social media. And perhaps there's respect built on that level maybe in that specific environment. I don't think mm -hmm. that's right for every environment, but hey, if it's working, I'm not so, gonna judge. So I, I don't know what you mean by reading someone. Uh, what I mean by reading right. someone is you need to fix your fucking Walmart internet. That's what I mean. You need to get <laughs> your Walmart internet together. I had a miss, fine. <laughs> so anyway, that's a read, that's a read. Okay, I think if there is no division that gives you respectability. Behaving like a child and trying to pretend that you can be in their shoes in a way that erases your adulthood from the interaction, I think is a kind of self-effacement that also is going to limit the possibility that you can educate someone. No one's going to respect their peers as much as they will an adult who comports themselves properly, I don't think. I'm going to push back against that on multiple fronts, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, please. So I started teaching when I was 22. It was like, I fit in with the culture already. I knew what everything was like. I knew all of the rhythms. And I think it was exciting for them that I was so young and so in it with them almost. And I thought that did build up, you know, extra four. And I think that's even still true nowadays, even though I'm much older than my students now. I've been teaching for 10 years. I still think that I'm viewed as like this young, cool teacher. And again, like they want to be on my good side, but it's not necessarily that they respect me as an adult or me as an authority figure. And that's honestly one of the biggest changes that I've seen mm. in education over the last 10 years is that there was a point I could just say a rule and students would obey it because they recognize the authority that teachers had. And I have seen that dwindle and dwindle over the last decade. And that has made my job more challenging. I have two hypotheses okay. about this. One is regional. So I just moved from Portland, Oregon to Nashville. And there is a respect here that was mm -hmm. nowhere to be found in Oregon. I'm assuming Denver is going to be more blue than Austin was. So there's that yes, ma'am, no man situation. And then second of all, you've been on TikTok, what, like two years? Yeah, two years. Hmm. Do you think that that is effacing any of your respect? I don't know. That's actually a really good question. The big change is like that cultural shift from Texas to Colorado, for sure. And I think that that has a huge play in how I'm experiencing students here compared to Texas. But I wonder if like, yeah, that I think that I'm like this cool hit person. So like I can roll with whatever punches they throw at me. So yeah, I wonder if that does have something to do with the growing TikTok popularity. Hmm. I'm trying to engage my students where they are, right? I know that they're going to spend time on social media. And if they're following me, in theory, the algorithm will work out in my favor where they're going to follow other nerds who love talking about history. And that is like my hope and my dream. So I want to try to keep it always like we're talking about cool things, maybe things that people didn't learn in high school, but also like it's fun and engaging and content driven and like hopefully allowing students to like learn new things. So that, that's a perfect segue into our challenge, meeting people where they are. <laughs> so how did that go for you? I had a blast. Brett, did you have fun? I actually had much more fun than 
I thought that I would. And I only sat down with three people, but one conversation at the very end went on for about an hour and touched on all kinds of things that were, you know, related to multiple intelligences, but then expanded into things that were cultural. And it was a, such a fantastic conversation that I didn't want it to end. And I, I talked to a young woman uh, working as a kind of barista in a cafe who had a little bit of psychological knowledge. And so it was an interesting exchange with her as well. So the, the first one, guy, he was a street musician and he didn't, well, he didn't know much about multiple intelligences. And you could tell by the end that no matter what I did, I might not have been a, that, that good of a teacher. And then once I just sat down with the second two people, I realized I didn't really need to teach them anything. They already knew more than enough to understand the concepts. And they were teaching me things in ways that I appreciated more than for my few moments of fame as an educator. I think that's <laughs> a great point because a great teacher is really a great learner, I think. Mm -hmm. the like, if you are excited and passionate about whatever it is you're teaching, there people are going to feel it. And I think that's the, probably like what you're getting at. But I will say, Brett, I looked at your scores. And um, <laughs> so your people might have had fun, but uh -huh. you was not effective. <laughs> I, 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 I know I wasn't effective, I did, but the thing is, at least with the second woman, I didn't need to be effective at all. She knew. She got it. God. And the first guy didn't learn nothing. And I knew that was going to be terrible. I was like, you know what? This is pretty much summing up why I'm not a teacher. Let's see who got this one wrong. Let's see who got this wrong, because now I'm curious. So you only got two. I, by the way, your sample yeah. size is low as shit. So I, I had three, but you shut it down because you was like, oh, he's doing good. I'm ain't going to catch up to Maya. That's what you was doing. I nothing. I shut nothing down. Okay. It, it timed out, but it, maybe you had it set up for a week and it was just me being late. But you late. Yeah. Also yeah, late. So the first question is, what was your teacher's name? Yes. <laughs> I, I had no clue. Tony didn't get it. Tony also didn't get that musical intelligence was not part of the first. So he did not get that. He also believed that the theory had been validated which oh, it was oh, yeah. in fact not false, <laughs> but he really connected with you. He got nine out of 10 super connected with you. Yeah. There was nothing about this topic. I think that was interesting to him at all. And he was really just out there looking to make some money playing his drums and singing songs. And I was probably little more than a nuisance that he happened to entertain so that he could get a tip. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this one, CC got uh -huh. your name. Cece got the this question correct, and she got this question correct, so good. Yeah. And she loved talking with you, and she felt like you were very effective. She loved you. Yeah, You awesome. had one who completely failed, and then right. you had one that completely passed. The expert in anything was once a novice, and that was my first attempt. So I will say that I improved so radically after even just one shot. That proves that innately I am fucking awesome as a teacher oh my God, your ego is out of control and my no. third one would have been just as good but it's just not it's not on there she actually could have taught us she was so good that like i said an hour with her and there's nothing i could have there's nothing i could have taught her i think she probably knew more than we did after having read what little we did of his theory wow that's impressive i because yeah. everyone i talked to had no clue and they all answered correctly, but like this one felt very connected, felt like I was effective and enjoyed the experience, but not everybody felt that way about me. But I was teaching groups. I had two single people and then two groups that I taught. So the first two people I taught were singular. 
And then there was a whole gaggle of older people. And then there was a whole gaggle of younger people. So that definitely changed things. And I think some of those people didn't feel connected because interpersonal skills are different one-on-one than in a group. Oh, completely agree. So, so Emily, you are the ex- resident expert on interpersonal skills. And I, I say this not only because you're a teacher, but because you have cracked a TikTok code that requires a certain level of interpersonal intelligence as well. Yeah. Huh. Lazy first off, I think, Brett, it, it's really interesting that even though that first guy didn't learn anything, he really enjoyed his time with you. And I think that <laughs> and even every person that you were talking about enjoyed their time with you. And Natasha, I love that contrast that you set up of that when you had bigger groups, people felt less connected. Because I do think that is an important observation because if you right. have these one-on-one connections, that's how you build up a lot of like relationship and trust and like positive rapport between the people. And I think even back to last year, I had a handful of students who would come into my classroom every day before school started just to hang out and chat. And the relationship that I built with those students was far richer than the relationship that I had with my students that I just see in passing or even just see in my classroom for an hour and a half every other day. So I think there is something huge to like that one-on-one or that kind of small group interaction because that does feel less personal because I am trying to reach all people in my classroom all at once compared to one-on-one, even like tutoring or just hanging out, having a conversation together. Yeah. So imagine you're in a lecture hall and you're one of 150 people and uh, you know how connected are you to the, the most brilliant lecturer in that field? That person is not speaking to you. I took a lecture class in college that was like Astronomy 301 or something. And there were 400 people in this lecture hall. My astronomy professor was so cute. He wore like a little planet t-shirt every day, tucked (laughs) into his jeans with a belt. Like he was old school and just so delightful. I liked the the content, but whenever, like about 10 minutes in, I'd be like, okay, can I get on like StumbleUpon or some other dumb website that existed in 2009? Just because you're reaching everyone, you don't even know that I exist in this room right now. You don't have no idea what my name is. I'm just someone on your roster. It's way less personal. It's way less effective when you're reaching that large group of people. So we could talk about how broken the educational system is. We could talk about (laughs) higher education. That's my other podcast. (laughs) But the pandemic was very informative. (laughs) And, you know, I was in Oregon. I was actually at a private school. And I realized, you know, my $30,000 a year, whatever I was paying, was not going to cut it over Zoom. Mm -hmm. There was no reason to have her in a private school. My daughter at the time was a second grader. So what I did was I pulled her out of that school. And Oregon was out of school the entire year. Went back for a month, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Let's Mm -hmm. shake everybody up at the end of the year. So I hired a teacher. I gathered about 10 women and some of them fell off. So there was six families that came to my home, dropped their kids off every day. And we had a teacher who came and she was amazing. And she sat with the kids and they did their Zooms and they did their homework. And she built in some extra curriculum. It was all ages. It was kindergarten through fourth grade. And This small group, they were so tight by the end. They learned so much and they didn't fall behind nearly as much as these other kids. And so I'm like looking at the educational system like, this is better. Little pod, this is better. I had thought about that too. When COVID first hit, I was thinking, okay, this is finally exposing and making everyone aware of how broken the education system is. I remember thinking, how can we fix this? Because that's not something that I could do. That's something that needs to systemically change. But I love the idea of how can I start like a little pod? How can I get a couple of other teachers 
and then like reach out to people in our neighborhood because I would love for it to be even proximity based. I think that neighborhood connection is huge. And then can I just teach your kids? Can I make some kind of sustainable living wage off of these like really small scale interactions like that? And even it doesn't have to be a whole school day, right? It can be like four hours a day and we can get all the learning done that we need to get done. I would love for something like that to exist in the education world because I think there just needs to be a lot rethought. COVID has exposed the things. Okay, now what are we going to do with the fact that everything's exposed? Nothing. It's like, ah, nothing. Let's just pile it back, <laughs> back more, out there. More testing. More testing. Yes. That's what the students need. Yeah. Love to hear your thoughts about why they don't need testing. Because I went from Oregon. My daughter never had a grade up until she came here in fourth grade. She was like, this number on my paper. I'm like, that baby, that's how many you got wrong. Her teachers were like flabbergasted because they didn't believe in assessment. <laughs> In Oregon. I'd love to hear y'all tell me why assessment should be removed. Oh, oh, I don't think it should be removed at all. I'm a very big proponent of testing. That doesn't mean that there might not be some auxiliary ways of demonstrating comprehension for people with, let's say, dyslexia or uh, what's the corollary for that in numbers? Dysgraphia. Dysgraphia. Okay. So I would love to see more of (laughs) that I've never gotten in education is that a lot of people who do homeschooling do so in a way that brings out exploration of the natural world, multi-sensory, multimodal ways, engage the person as a learner, as a human uh, in an environment in which they participate and interact with and they pick up things in ways that I think that resonate with them more deeply than merely regurgitating things that someone has said. Then you notice a, a, a kind of stratification from that kind of education because a lot of those kids wind up being very creative uh, and uh, prolific in some areas of science because of that exploration. I totally agree. I am actually currently teaching in an experiential education school. And I went from teaching in public school for eight years, which was very much the we're going to teach to the test because we have the tests and we have to take them. And that's what the students need to know based on this course. And then at this private school, which is an experiential ed school, I can do kind of whatever I want to do. You know, you talk about assessments. I think assessments are good. I don't think that multiple choice assessments are what students need. Most of my assessments were project-based, exploratory learning-based, or like written essays, because I think that essay writing or just writing in general is an important skill that students will need forever. And a lot of these assessments were, hey, you can choose what you want to do. Like, here are your three options. And I always try to hit different even theories of intelligence or kinesthetic learning styles or whatever kind of learning style. So they have options of how they want to complete this. They have like, you know, rubrics associated with each of them. Then it's up to them. And then I think that encourages so much more buy-in, right? If students are having this voice and choice and what they're learning, how they're going to present that information, that makes them care more about what they're doing, kind of what you were just talking about, Brett. And I think that is like the key to successful learning. And that's what I've noticed in my classroom. Even in the midst of the pandemic, students were like fully engaged in this kind of learning compared to the learning that existed in my public schools, which was very much, we have to take the test. We have to do the things. Emily, you teach high school, right? I do. Have you heard of Catlin Gable? No. So Catlin Gable is like the 14th best day school in the country. It's in Oregon. Oh, wow. This is where I had my daughter because someone I know in my scientific world recommended it. And so I was all geeked about this. I started her at pre-K and they don't do letter grades. And so I asked, how will I know how my child's doing? And they scoffed at me. And I felt totally shamed, to be honest. They were like, we're going to talk to you. Duh. Like, we're going to, don't worry. And then 
Nobody in first grade knew how to read. And then they said, oh, you guys need to teach them how to read. I was teaching my kid to read, just best believe, because I believe that this experiential style learning, having experienced it myself with my own daughter, you can't do it too young and you can't do it too much because they don't learn the rote skills they need to have a baseline. And yes, and then it also sets them up to be loosey goosey and like, oh, we're, we're able to fidget and move and all this shit. And like, in actuality, <laughs> I remember one time my daughter was sitting bouncing at the table or whatever. And my husband's like, can you sit still? She was like seven or six or something like that. And she's like, I need a fidget toy. Yeah. <laughs> we were, you remember that? We were like, yeah, you told me I story. was like, she goes, I need a fidget toy. And he goes, you need a what? And she goes, I need a fidget toy. And he's like, yeah, ain't no fidget toys here. He's like, what are you going to do? You go to work telling me you need a fidget toy? I would fire you. <laughs> she uh, like, he, uh, he would, but you know, there's a lot of corporations now who will pander no, to, your, to your every yeah. nervous tick. So <laughs> No, that can you for a TikTok nowadays. Like, yeah. So there's, I think there's a line because I was all gung-ho about this. Being a scientist myself, I'm like, yeah, experiment on my kid. And then she doesn't know the months of the year by fourth grade. Bad news, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that works better at, the high school level because last year I had a conversation with my students and I asked them how many of them had to memorize times tables. Like that is something that we all had to memorize, I'm assuming. And they just, they haven't learned that. They have never memorized times tables because memorization what? is now a bad thing to do, which what? is not, yes. Oh, memorization oh, is oh, bad. You're avoiding memorization. Oh, okay. So I'm let's surprised. So you can't simply Google the answer to every question and expect it to demonstrate understanding for you. And so if you don't have things in your mind already that are the foundation from which you will start to integrate and then think about the new information that comes in, you're going to be a dummy. You're not going to be any better than the information coming in at any given point. You need to know some stuff. Yes. Memorization is not the enemy. And I think somewhere right. along the way, they said it was bad and then they stopped doing it. But then again, like, yeah, you know, the months of the year that's memorized. That's in your brain forever. That's going to stay there forever. Memorizing times tables makes future math a lot easier because you know what seven times eight is in the back of your brain. You don't have to pull out your phone to do that. So somewhere along the way that ended. And I think that with the younger age students, like they need to learn, quite honestly, like authority and discipline so that they can be successful further on. And I wonder if that's why experiential or like exploratory education is harder at that stage because they're allowed to do whatever they want to. And there maybe aren't a lot of guidelines or bumpers that are keeping them in line of where they need to go because it's very much like you do you. I'm here as like the wise person who can tell you what to do if you have a question. And I don't know that I agree with that. I think that does take us a little bit back to the very beginning of the conversation. We were talking about the difference between teaching style that is friendly. It's almost like parenting styles where they're too friendly. You watch how quickly the child will challenge you and then become unruly to the point where you are no longer the parent. Early on, maybe it is much better to maintain that kind of separations. And then, you know, people mature and then they know some boundaries and then they can play with them a little bit. No child without governance of some kind and some discipline, I think, is going to ultimately become a disciplined adult. And that includes self-discipline. So a lot of what we've been talking about is the boundary between educator and the student. This is particularly relevant to the topic of interpersonal intelligence or people skills, whatever it is, because people skills are all about boundaries. Where do you start and where do I end? And if we don't understand that, then we've got a problem at the jump. And then secondarily, 
What is the goal of our interaction together? A lot of these parents, I'm just going to say it, I think they just don't have the interpersonal skills. They probably don't have the intrapersonal awareness and then the interpersonal skills to look at their child and go, no, we don't do this or this isn't how we do it. And then they internalize what the child does as I'm doing a bad job. They are a reflection of me, which is narcissistic. There's no narcissism so. in society today, by the way, just say. <laughs> I would like to just uh, take full responsibility for this because I'm a, a Generation X kind of guy. And uh, I think it's my generation's fault. So I think there's a, there is a transition point between the generation prior and Generation X during which some of the difficulties uh, you know, in the 70s and maybe the 80s, let's say, the early to mid 80s, led to a parenting style where they said, I'm not going to do this to my kid. I'm not going to be that strict. And so the reaction to perhaps overly protective and overly strict parenting has been something so far in the opposite direction that it no longer resembles parenting at all. And it's my diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I agree with that because I know a lot of you know, a lot of people who are like slightly my age or like slightly older um, who have kids and their parenting style is very much, I want to let my kids do what they want because my parents were super strict and like oppressive and like I wasn't allowed to express myself. So I definitely want to make sure that my kids don't have that experience. So I think it is some kind of reaction of them trying to atone for their parents' wrongs in their lives. But I yeah. think that is also causing a lot of problems for maybe these kids who are growing up in that very like three, you do you, I'm just here as your friend and partner kind of household. Yeah, it's kind of West Coast is fucked. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> because that's what, all that's happening out there. And I've seen being out here, the parents, my daughter's friend, she's not even allowed to ask if she can spend the night in front of adults because her parents don't want to put the parents on the spot. And I'm like, y'all are my heroes. And it's not a weird, oppressive thing. She's like super respectful, super helpful, kind, can see it in her parenting versus the vast majority of these kids at this experimental school I was at, they were snotty little fucking brats. <laughs> they were. And they, they had this rule, you can't say you can't play, where they would basically tell them in early school, like first, second grade, you have to include everybody in your play group. Like if someone comes over and you're playing a game and they want to play, you can't tell them they can't play. <sighs> See, like my thoughts about that is... I understand like wanting to include everyone. And I do think that, you know, we have to learn to be nice to other people at a young age. But going back to what you were saying earlier, Natasha, is part of interpersonal intelligence is having boundaries and like being okay with saying, no, this is just me and my friend here. And if you are saying those boundaries can't exist, I think that is, yeah, that is just an, that is interesting. So you think about what it's doing. First of all, it's cultivating a more communal environment. You can't say you can't play means we're all in this together. I think that's the intent, is to erode the boundary of self, to decrease the individual perspective. Because they do this in China, where they make them all squat over the trough together. But I think eroding the individual nature of things is setting people up for a problem because we live in an individualistic society. And I don't think it's really going to get less so. But now you're going to have a bunch of people out there who are angry at the rest of the world who's not living like them. They're going to be disappointed and angry. Like, I'm self-sacrificing over here. They're going to be haters. They're going to be haters is all I can say. Because you're teaching them, no, you need to be nice to everybody. And then everybody else is not nice. And they go out in the world, they're going to cry, and they're going to be sad, and they're going to be mad at everybody, and they're going to be angry is what I'm predicting. You can't force people Children, you are, you know, they're malleable. But I really think that when you hit puberty, there's like this little switch where 
you're not listening to anybody. And effectively, from that point, you really are raised, I think, not by your parents so much as you are by your peer groups. Like you must display mastery over yourself to be a proper adult. So childhood is more collective, I would say. And learn how to interact with other people in a wild environment. When we were interviewing with for this school, we sat in the auditorium with the seniors who they called the lifers. It was K through 12. Mm -hmm. And they were getting ready for college or whatever. My husband raises his hand in front of all the parents. I was so mortified. And he was like, do you feel like you've been overly sheltered? Do you feel like you're ready for college? Like well, there's a bunch of people who didn't go to this school, who didn't have these rules that you have, who's, who've had grades, who've grown up in a harder situation than you. Do you feel like you're prepared? And I was like, oh my God, I love you. I could see all the parents. They were like, wow. And the kid, I have to say the kid was poised, but you know, they're picking their best to go in front of the parents and the big donors. You know what I mean? What do you think about these kids at your school? I think that. So what's unique about my school is it's K through 12 also. But then, you know, you have people kind of leaving and coming at the end of the lower school, at the end of the middle school and then into upper school. So I teach ninth grade this year and about a third of the ninth grade class is new to the school. And I think that those kind of interjections of like, hey, here's a bunch of people that you've never actually been around before who you're not used to, who are probably different than the people that you were experiencing in the middle school level for like those lifers who have been here the whole time. I think that that is enough to spice it up, to make things new and different, to force them to maybe interact with people outside of that small bubble. But I also think that the schools that I taught at, the public school that I taught at in Colorado before this one was also very much a bubble. It was relatively homogenous. Everyone was kind of college bound. They were all at a certain socioeconomic status. And I think that college is going to be hard for anyone who grows up in any kind of bubble where they're just surrounding themselves with people who are like them because they're not used to being challenged in certain ways or they're not learning how to interact with people who come from a very different background than them whether that's like a different ethnic background or religious background or whatever that looks like. I think that college is going to be more of a learning curve for those students. Maybe not even college, but honestly, the real world, right? Like, how do you learn to interact with like your boss or your colleagues who are different than you in all of these various ways? You don't want kids to go through too much adversity. But what I'm seeing is not enough adversity is a problem as well. And so these kids in these ideal environments they ain't got tough times. There's some kind of a, it's like an adage or something like that, but it's diamonds are forged under pressure or something of that sort. So if you never apply pressure, if you never apply uh, any kind of adversity to a person, they don't develop any kind of resiliency. And I think one of the symptoms of this societally really is the perpetual coddling that we go through. And you go into college, it's really just an extension of high school, which itself was really just an extension of grade school. And just see that we are basically extending uh, kindergarten and you've got a lot of adults in diapers in corporations now. And I think it's a travesty. <laughs> I have a lot of things to say about that. I think my first thing is, I think on TikTok or on social media, I've been seeing a lot of like, hey, you know, things need to shift to be part of this new kind of Gen Z world. And like, I think there might be something to that, right? If we're thinking about how COVID has exposed a lot of inequities or a lot of systemic problems in the world. Okay, what can we do to remedy some of those things? And I do think that like, that does pose an interesting question. Just because it's been done this way for the last 50 years doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. So how can we change those things? And I think I'm seeing that on small scales and I think that's important. I would love to work from home, but I can't work from home because I'm a teacher, but I love that my husband can now work from home full time because what's the point of going to an office? So there are some like some questioning of the ways it's been done for a long time in order to better accommodate this new emerging workforce. And I want to say that, period. But then also, I love what you had to say about 
this like lack of experiencing failure. When I was in high school, I remember the thing was like the helicopter parents. They're just like hovering over, always checking in on their kids. And then when I moved to Colorado, I feel like the shift was, okay, it's the snowplow parents. They're trying to just get rid of every obstacle so their kid can be successful. But now I feel like this new kind of parenting. And again, I don't want to say that all parents are like this, but what I'm noticing is that it's like a golden brick road parent. Like they want to make it the road to success as easy and beautiful as possible so that their students never have to struggle in any way. And on my back to school night, what I talk about every year is ninth grade is the time to learn how to fail if we haven't learned how to fail yet. The stakes are low. They can come back from anything. Like how can we teach and encourage failure so that they can build up resistance, so that they can build up that interpersonal intelligence, so that they can learn from their failures and become people who are capable of facing adversity. Yeah. And the problem with these kids in these more privileged schools is they are the golden children. They are coming from one or two children in their family. They don't have to struggle. And even some of these kids that are really talented, this is why like the valedictorian of your high school never really goes on to do very much because they just coasted. I mean, I was salutatorian, so... um, (laughs) It, throw that know, in there. I, for me, it was <laughs> accidental that my grandmother didn't graduate from eighth grade. I'm the first to go to college, but it occurred to me like in eighth grade, like, oh shit, like, I got called up for all these awards. I was like, okay, I guess I'm smart. And so I got real cocky. And, you know, I feel like now in the last couple years, I'm really experiencing failure. Like I'm doing things I'm not good at. And I'm 36 years old. And I'm like, I have, I've had to take a huge step back in my life just to like evaluate my own emotions. Because I didn't have to develop resiliency around my own efficacy. I had to develop resiliency around other people and interpersonally, but not around my own abilities. We talk about this with relationships where these young Gen Zers, you ever seen Skatey 420 where she talks, she does like, I need a himbo pog daddy. You know, and she's, you know, (laughs) she's talking about relationships and Mm -hmm. the vibe overall of relationships interpersonally, what I'm seeing with Gen Z is very bubbled. So like, you're toxic. No, you're toxic. I love that for you. I love that for you. They're not connecting. Do you say this like with your students? I think they have a lot of intrapersonal intelligence, perhaps like they're trying to get to know themselves, but then they're like, no, I'm good. I'm protecting myself and my energy from you and your toxicness. Yes. There's so many feelings going on and they, they have the positive feelings, all the negative feelings, everything in between. And they always want to be cool. So I feel like all of those things play in together. Like they want to be popular. They want to be well-liked. And also they have like an abundance of emotions and These teens rely a lot more on their emotions than they rely on like their thoughts and their intellect. And they make these very emotionally driven behaviors, which makes sense because their brain is still developing and they have all these new emotions and new feelings that they didn't have before. But I think that, yes, it is very much either like I love you or I hate you. There's not a lot in between and they exist in kind of those two opposites. And they don't necessarily even know like what love means, but they just have very strong feelings. They try to figure out how to fit those feelings into their interactions with other people. And it usually is like very positive or very negative. It's not so bad that they're still kind of in diapers because literally their frontal lobes are not even developed yet. Yes. No, we live a long time. They're not completely developed, but it is a kind of continuum. It's not like you hit 25 and all of a sudden everything about you that's going to be adult is permanently anchored in there. And you continue to develop your sense of time and your relationship to your mortality and all kinds of things 
that you know you don't even think about until you're you've crossed at least thirty, and then you really start to think about it when you get into your forties because you can start to see the finish. Absolutely, yeah, that's good. So you're teaching African history this semester, you said. Yes, like the history of Africa, not African American history, and a lot of people were getting confused with that. Like the whole continent, one semester, twenty seven classes. Damn, which is like not enough time to teach anything, let alone the history of an entire continent. But still, yeah. I never took African history in high school. I mean, is this an AP, an elective? What is this? This is an elective class. So I was teaching four classes last year and then wanted to teach five this year and ran through a bunch of different classes that I would teach. And African history and art history were the two that made. So I'm teaching those two this year alongside my world history class that I always mm -hmm. teach. I think there's no controversies around African history because... We're like, oh, that was over there. But there are some controversies. And we talked specifically about the 1619 Project. I don't know if you had a chance to kind of like dig into that a little bit. But what do you think about this? Because it was a big to-do for a long time. Indeed. I have a lot of thoughts about this. As a historian and as a teacher of history, the thing that I care the most about is considering like this narrative of history that a lot of people have been taught in high schools in the United States over time. And this narrative of history tends to be predominantly white that focuses really just on white men and not necessarily women or people of color or any indigenous peoples. And that isn't a full perspective of our history in the United States. I just think that the narrative is changing, especially in light of like recent kind of social movements that have been happening. And I think that's great because I think as a historian, it's so important to be able to include diverse perspectives that help support and build a clearer, stronger narrative rather than just this perspective from one person, which is what this white perspective has kind of been pervasive in U.S. history for the last 60 years. So my hope is that all teachers in history try to include as many diverse perspectives as possible. Like I want to hear from women and like they're often not considered or talked about or taught about. I mean, the same is true for like anyone who's not white. I want to make sure that we are being as all-inclusive as possible in my class. And I think the goal of the 1619 Project is to just say 1776 was not the start of the United States. Let's talk about people who built the United States. Let's talk about all of these colonies and not just white people in the colonies. Let's talk about the enslaved peoples that were brought over to like literally build the nation. And that's where they're receiving so much critique. But the amount of money that the South was producing from enslaved labor is so substantial. Yeah. How can we overlook that? How can we just say, oh, just kidding, it was like these farmers and completely neglect the entirety of the enslaved populations? We have to acknowledge it. We have mm -hmm. to acknowledge that that's true because that's literally the history. Well, I agree with you. I agree with everything you said. I think the concern is that people are being revisionist. And so the, what was her name? Nicole, I can't remember what her name was, who wrote the most controversial essay in the whole compendium, claiming that the Revolutionary War was fought over slaves. And that is a big reach. So mm -hmm. there's a difference between telling multiple facets of a story and then trying to shape a story to fit mm -hmm. a narrative. That, I think, is the major concern that people who are against this or think they're against it have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. that's such a great point, too, because in my class, I want to offer all of these different perspectives of whatever we're talking about, whatever the topic is, and then have students draw their own conclusion based on that information and based on that evidence. And I think that, yeah, she has then taken all of these perspectives and she has then woven a story based on it that she wants now other people to agree with. And 
I want students in my classroom to make educated decisions based on the evidence that is presented in front of them. And if they have corroborating evidence or if they have evidence that refutes whatever they're saying, I think that it's helpful to incorporate all of those things to draw kind of one conclusion. That is where I will end that statement. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things that our society generally is struggling with is the ability to differentiate between mythology and things that are actually uh, factual. So what is the demarcation point between certain things happened and they are incidental versus they are fundamentals? And then what is the proper narrative to draw? And I would argue that a major failing of what I see in our education system in general, and I would include all the way up through undergrad, is if you don't know how to debate such that you can grab an opponent's position and argue all the reasons why that might be right and understand it well enough that you could begin to see the holes in your own position, maybe teaching people alternative ideas about history might not necessarily be the best thing. You know, now we're going to take the kind of racism that used to exist in the past. And, you know, still there is some today, but nothing. You can't argue at all that it's like the 1920s in the States. And then uh, saying that, well, because this happens, these people are evil. And now you have the equivalent of original sin and you should have this extended guilt that is a parallel to religious guilt from even having been born in the first place because somebody had to have committed a sin. That is the main failing of education. Being taught an alternative fact at a time, especially when you are more likely to be questioning the history you've been taught because when you've hit puberty, you are likely to rebel and question everything you've ever been told. Teaching people this revisionist stuff at this time without teaching critical thinking is, I think, the major hole in our education system. Yeah, Brett, I agree with that. I think the thing that I want my students to get out of my classroom is to critically consume information, whether that's like media information, whether that's something they're reading in the textbook. I want them to not just take it because someone has told it to them. I want them to critically examine that and think about it and become these critical thinkers because, Brett, I totally agree. That is such a huge failing of even people my age nowadays that I interact with. They believe everything on the internet and they can't critically consume information in a way that allows them to filter through the things that are like clearly don't line up and don't make sense. Right. Oh, then an issue that I would have with the idea of calling anything critical, like this idea of critical race theory, let's say, since we're Mm -hmm. in this genre, what you don't realize is the word critical is being grabbed and co-opted and you're looking at a magnified fragment of a prism of what's going on with the full spectrum of information and then assuming that the entire world is this. It is the poorest possible manifestation of reason. And this is because no one understands what it means to even truly be critical. You're Mm. given a paradigm and you're just regurgitating it. You're not actually a thinker. Yeah, uh, people don't want to think. This is the part that upsets me the most. But I see small ways of encouraging it. And I see things through social media. Like today, I'm getting dragged on TikTok. Um, <laughs> what happened? Uh, well, I basically, you know, Michaela Naguera, the makeup lady. She has a Boston accent and she's got like oh, a really, yes. Yeah. Yes. So she, there was a video that came out and she was basically saying, do you know how hard my life is? You should try being an influencer. I work till 519 today. And so people, <laughs> you know, people are dragging her. Over and so I know. <laughs> Meanwhile, they somewhat there's a video of her opening all this like Prada Gucci PR boxes or whatever. I said, who is a TikToker who has become so mainstream that we no longer trust them? And I put her picture up. And people were like, you're just jealous. <laughs> you, you know, and I'm, I'm like, 
And they're you're like, just like, whoa, <laughs> they're like, you're mean, you're not nice. So someone with like 250,000 followers came on and said, you're being a bully. And she goes, you could never cancel her because you only have 6,000 followers. And I was like, the definition of a bully is perception of power. I can't be bullying someone who has more power than me. That's punching up, you dipshit. But there are all these people who are on social media and at surface glance, you look and you go, ooh, <laughs> this is bad. They're misinterpreting all these things. But what I look for in the plethora of comments dragging me is I look for the people who actually are asking questions. And there's mm -hmm. a few of them asking, well, what can we do? Whose fault is it? Why is it like this? And those are the people that give me hope because I'm like, yes, we have to start from a position of curiosity. I used Michaela as a device to illustrate a problem with them, the entire thing, that once you ascend to a certain level, your credibility goes down and people no longer trust you. So I do have hope that the algorithm, like what you said in the beginning, will start to help those people question a little bit more and it'll meet people where they are and help drag them up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm optimistic, you know, I trust these algorithms though. Just, you know, I, I enjoy YouTube quite a bit and you know, I see crap in my feed because I clicked on something that might've had some subtle hints is of a relationship with something. And before you know it, I'm seeing advertisements for these things. And it's like, where the hell is this taking me now? If I were to follow those, even down, like, you know, run one rung on the ladder further. I would be in a world of conspiratorial garbage that, that would make a complete idiot of me. So I don't know that the algorithms are helpful at all. Maybe not for your type. <laughs> well, maybe because I'm a bit of a weirdo. Uh, you might have figured that out by now. I guess my point is, if you're doing anything that's a little bit different at all, you're going to find yourself at risk of being pulled away on tangents that if you can't, again, critically consume, you'll start believing and thinking all kinds of nonsense a dogpiling effect yeah. Sure. yeah you're right but i mean then there are people like emily emily's like a <laughs> shining light on tiktok plenty you know she's putting out good content she's wholesome as fuck <laughs> you gotta be when you have students watching your tiktoks i saw you your one tiktok of you dressed in like the adam sandler day you yes. were wearing so she says, oh, it's Adam Sandler Day. Like, what the hell, Gen Z? Why do we have Adam Sandler Day? And then the comment, what was the comment that you got? It was oh, like, I don't remember. Oh, the comment was like, oh, I love this because I want to study Mexican-American history. Oh. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, they thought you like a cholo or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just what a weird space. That person's not pursuing a minor in Mexican-American studies because I guess of things that this person had watched on my TikTok. And that's like, uh, that's like where I want to be. I want to reveal new information, give them the facts, and then again, let them draw whatever conclusion they want out of that. And then this person was like, this is awesome to learn about. I want to keep learning about it. I want to now do that at the collegiate level, which is mm. such like a sweet little gift. Like what a fun place to be in. Oh, a little self-reflection, a little intrapersonal intelligence. What is it that makes you so successful? I love learning. And I think that translates and manifests itself in very obvious ways when I'm in my classroom. I'm very passionate about the content that I teach because I think it's the best. Because I think learning is so fun. I love seeing my students get to learn new things. And I think that very positive, passionate energy is key to getting students to listen to me and to also buy into whatever I'm talking about in my classroom. 
And I think it is refreshing, especially compared to, you know, other teachers that I've seen or watched or interacted with who are very much like, let me do this lecture and point out the things behind me and speak in a monotone voice the whole time. And that is, that's just boring. And I'm not like that at all because my personality is not like that. And I think that helps build a lot of rapport in my classroom and build a lot of excitement in my classroom. And then even with TikTok, that comes off too. I am very expressive and I'm very passionate about the things I choose to share on TikTok. And that maybe breaks down that wall between me and the people who are watching because it feels more personal and it feels more like I'm having a conversation. Yeah, I see that totally because on social media, we're talking, we're trying to talk through the fourth wall and most people suck at it because yeah. it's weird. You know, you're like talking to the screen, you're like, this is weird. Someone walks in, you're like, oh, I'm just, yeah, I'm talking. I'm sorry, I'm like talking <laughs> to myself. But you've transcended that. And you've been able to connect with people and that matters. Like, so what do you think on social media is the biggest challenge? When I started this whole TikTok adventure, my whole point was to try to prep my AP European history students for their AP European history test. And I was like, I'm just going to make review videos so that you can like follow along because you're going to be on TikTok anyway. And then it just kind of evolved into these other, this world that it's at now, which is wild to me, but I think that my mindset's the same. I don't care about being cool and having sponsorships or having ads or any of that stuff. My bio says like, I want others to love learning. And that is kind of my whole mindset. I don't care if I have 10 followers or if I have 68,000 followers. Like I just want to do my authentic self and be my authentic self and talk about cool things that I've been learning about or thinking about and hope that other people enjoy it. I hope that's not a cop-out answer because that's the real answer is like, I don't, I don't care Same. about like making a brand. I just want to do this thing that's fun because I think other people can have fun with it too. I feel the same way. I totally get what you're doing. And I think people can sense it. You know, mm -hmm. there's like this authenticity thing on TikTok where you may not be able to break through the fourth wall, but people are watching you and looking for motivations and integrity and like, why are you doing this? Look at how they are tearing the Kardashians mm -hmm. art right now. Kim had a fake tear. Like these people are not <laughs> for the fake shit no more. Wait a second. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to have an 85% silicon booty, and then you're going to have it removed from your body, people are going to talk about that. I would say, put it back on because you looked better as a circus freak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a horrible person. <laughs> no. But that's my authentic self. And because it is, I don't have to worry about branding. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we love you, Brett. <laughs> and I think this speaks to manipulation, the cons of interpersonal intelligence, that mm. knowing people too well allows you to manipulate them. Have you ever read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? Mm -mm. Tell me about it. It's just rife with information about our heuristics, our biases, things that we think we don't do. Like, I would never be the one to push someone off the cliff. And it's like, yeah, you would. They talk about a fast system that we have and a slower, more cognitive system that gets at understanding these things. Our culture has been built on this fast system that everybody's just reacting to each other. And I think we're all starting to slow down a bit and go, hold on. Like, I'm exhausted, first of all. And I think it allows us to be more introspective, but also more competent to evaluate other people and to go, what are you about? What are you trying to do in this world? When people are trying to be manipulative, 
it comes through unless you're really good. Like the Kardashians are really good. They have a very high level of interpersonal intelligence in understanding how to build their marketplace. It's pure manipulation. But if you understand people well enough, you can manipulate them easily. True, but I also think that there isn't much intelligence behind just being a thirst trap. Taking basically a primal drive and, and exploiting it, eh, not that hard. Then uh -huh. now they're coming on TikTok and they're failing because they have nothing else to go on and people want the authenticity. But une uneven playing grounds, like they have a lot of room for error where people who are trying to kind of come up, they could be their most authentic selves and people are like, no, nah, I don't want that. I want something a little faker. I want something a little bit more polished. Well, I think people still want something to aspire to as well. So, you know, just being your authentic self, very often that can be great if others also would still like to be like you enough to mm -hmm. want to follow you and then maybe even emulate you to some degree. But uh, you don't have that something that is je ne sais quoi. Then guess what? You could be doing this all day long. You could be at 519. You could clock out at 520 and still not have nothing done. <laughs> Do you think, okay, so I love that example of that makeup artist because I didn't know that happened. Well, how do you think that that fits into this? Because she, was she being her authentic self or was she trying to, like, I don't think she was trying to manipulate anyone, but are you arguing that she's just out of touch because she's like so famous now? Well, first of all, it was taken out of context because it was like a year ago and she, so that her brand is built on authenticity. So people are suspect, right? Because sometimes she's a little extra, she's a little emotional on this thing. And so... People are looking at her going, are you really real? Is that accent really real? So they're looking to see, are you trying to manipulate me now? Because now she's got her own makeup line. And everybody is sus now because they, they're tired of being manipulated. And mm -hmm. so my argument is that you cross a certain threshold because you have a high level of interpersonal intelligence. This will happen to you too, Emily. Like, That's it. it You're going to be manipulating. You're manipulating us right oh, now, no. aren't you? <laughs> you have a... There is a threshold that we all cross if you transcend this arc that you have to work against your own self-interest in order to be taken seriously as like a good human. Mm -hmm. If you never work against your own financial and self-interest, you look like an asshat. So in terms of interpersonal intelligence, I think she doesn't know because she's carving this new pathway. And anybody who's a pioneer doesn't know what's going to happen right and so she's just like deer in headlights and she's probably crying in her room tonight because so many people are like i mean it's it's terrible but interpersonal intelligence does you not a lot of good on the barren landscape of mars you know yeah. where nobody's ever been before because <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> that was the one thing you had and there was no one else to rely on you did <laughs> you need to have you need to have some other kinds of intelligence it cannot be that's your only strength yeah. I know you have to go because you got to go be, uh, you know, chaperone the dance. You got to go wear the head. <laughs> Run around the building. Nice. One to 10, your interpersonal intelligence. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think about yourself. As an educator, I have to interact with everyone who's so different from me all the time. And I have to interact with people at all of these different levels, right? I have to interact with students and also colleagues and parents and admin. And there's just so much of learning how to read situations and learning how to read rooms that I have to experience on a daily basis and have learned how to experience on a daily basis that I will say, I think my interpersonal intelligence is high as a result because I've had so much practice. Like I just, I have had to learn how to do this and I've failed in extreme ways along the way, but all of those, again, failures, because failure is a good thing and builds up resilience has allowed me to realize how to handle that situation next time in the future.
Yeah. I love it. She's an interpersonal boss. I, I mean, can we start like the Emily Pool school for teachers who don't teach good? Like, <laughs> yeah, I think I'd have to be your Man. first. I, I'm a special needs student in that class, by the way. <laughs> Thanks for playing with us. As always, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you're doing the challenges with us. To find out about the next challenge, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter. And if you want to see Emily's Cholo Adam Sandler outfit and learn more about her adventures with history, you can find her on TikTok at 2 Pool for School.